Well, good day, everybody. My name is David Irvin, and I want to welcome you to our podcast uh, on conversations with authentic leaders. And for those of you who have been listening to my podcast, know that uh, I'm passionate about leadership. I'm passionate about difference, about making a difference. I, I, I say that my, my work in life is to make a difference to difference makers. And my passion is to really understand where does this capacity for the ability to influence actually come from. Um, you know, leadership is too important to be reduced to techniques or titles or tools. It's not so much the tools, although those can be valuable, but real leadership comes from the tool user. It's not so much what you do, it's who you are and who's the person underneath those tools. And so I'm having conversations in these podcasts with leaders that I respect, and not just because of what they've done in the external world and their accomplishments and their achievements, but by the difference that they make in the lives that they touch along the journey. And it is my good fortune today to introduce Ron Mitchell. Now, Ron Mitchell, I'm going to have you uh, share who you are, but uh, Ron Mitchell is is a professor of entrepreneurship and at the University of in, in Texas and in Lubbock and uh, at Texas Tech University. And Ron has been a friend of mine. We grew up together. Now, Ron's about five years older than, than me, so Ron's, uh, Ron was better and closer to my brother than he was to me. But our families grew up together, and it's just my good fortune in being able to talk with Ron. I've had respect for Ron over the years, deep respect for the difference that you've made in so many lives, not just in your your students, but with all the people that you impact, Ron. So it's my good fortune to introduce you to to this series and to have you share your own experiences and thoughts and perspective on not just authenticity, but also on leadership. So, Ron, welcome. Thank you so much, David. It's a pleasure to be here. Now, Ron, perhaps you could just start by just sharing a little bit about yourself and about your current leadership role and your passion, your vision, and just what, where you spend your time and energy uh, in your work these days. Well, thanks, Dave. Um, you know, the interesting thing that, that you bring up when we, when, when we talk about leadership is it, it's sort of, you used the word uh, ability to influence. And since I was really young, I mean, it was, it was at the time we were kids together, I have considered leadership to be something that involves influence. And so it never has been the, like a goal or a vision of leadership in my life to be the person up front at the head of the parade that everybody's looking at. I, tended to gravitate toward influence that uh, that comes by working really behind the scenes uh, l- listening t- to people um, learning what what they're interested in and, and caring about them which is one of your big words I know and, and Ron how, how does one act behind the scenes when you're a, a professor at university and you're up front all the time and, you know, what about the leaders that have kind of a, well, they have a title where, they're, where they have 
perhaps a big office or a, a leadership position, but they have a philosophy of working behind the scenes. How do you reconcile those two? So leadership really does involve person-to-person contact, and, and, and I fully agree with that. And in the sense of leading a class, we do stand in front of a class and, and, and lead. But when I'm standing in front of that class, I'm, I'm not really influencing, well, I am influencing the people who are in the class. But my goal is to influence the people that they influence. So I'm thinking about their success in their professions. Now, some of them are just very beginning, but others are executives who've come back to, you know, get a master's or to, to hone their skills. So, so from that standpoint, the idea of being an influencer is it has, a, has a broader horizon. To it, and so what, uh, what? When we talk about the tools and the influencing, what I'm trying to do is to deliver to the people who have trusted their time to me the kinds of ideas and 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 capacity building motivations that will enable them to be the leaders that. Frankly, in this rising generation, they will have to be. People will will look to them because of the skills that they've developed as we've worked together. You know, it's interesting, Ron. I just got off the phone with a, a client, and he was he was talking about how so many of the leaders uh, have been put into a position in his company because of their ability to contribute individually. But when they get into a role of leadership, they're promoted to being a, a positional leader. They've been in that. They've been put in that position. But the very thing that got them here actually is a barrier to getting them there, because they're they're such individual contributors that they haven't really developed a mindset collectively of making a difference and building capacity below them. They've been so used to developing their own capacity. That when you're when you're when you what you're doing is when you're thinking about building capacity in others, it's a whole different set of muscles. I'm, I'm imagining you would agree with that. I do, and I'm thinking about someone I met earlier in my career when I was actually working in organizations. His name is Paul Thompson, and, and he had kind of conceptualized how careers go. That you kind of. It's not really the medieval model, but it's sort of like you're the apprentice, you know, and then you're the individual producer, and and then you're the supervisor, and then you're the rainmaker. Were the words that he was was using, and what he tried to do in giving that sort of more lifelong look at leadership was to plant the seeds in the minds of the people that he taught that they, while they were doing the one, should be preparing to do the other. So that's, that's really the, uh, how, how security comes when you say, I'm working myself out of a job. Well, why are you working yourself out of a job? Because you're teaching everybody else how to be, for example, the individual performer 
Well, as you do that, you're preparing to be the supervisor. And as you're supervising, you're working yourself out of supervisor so that all the people who are super, who have the capacity to supervise end up becoming capable of, of making rain for the whole organization. And so from that standpoint, in, in, in some respects, the people who are the individual performers and who have focused there only, I don't want to say that it's a failure of leadership, but it, it maybe it's a failure of vision in the people that those individuals trusted to help them to map their careers in the phases as they as as they as they progressed. So so that's yes, I would agree with with you, and I and I think the thing that we do when we influence from behind the scenes is we plant the seeds in the minds of people that permit them to think well in advance and prepare their minds well in advance for the next role that they're going to assume. So you're always working your way out of a job, really, when you're building that capacity <laughs> in others. And, and ironically, or counterintuitively maybe, it's the most secure way to do it. Working yourself out of a job is not insecure. It is secure because as you, as you move throughout organization and in society and through life, the people who can, in fact, assume the next level of responsibility become fewer and fewer, perhaps because of the very thing you're talking about, at least as one contributor. So, Ron, as a segue into this next question that I have for you, my passion is around authenticity, and the research that I have done over the years is that when I ask people what they want from their leaders, it's, it's ironically the same thing that they want from themselves. And they may not be aware of it consciously, but it's about we want our leaders to get past the fads and the gimmicks and the flavors of the month. We want our leaders to be real. And so my work is around what does it mean to be real? What does it mean to bring to bring the real person to the work. And when authenticity has frankly taken a bad rap in, the la in recent years because people are walking around being a jerk and saying, well, and justifying it, frankly, and just saying, well, that's my authentic self, so I, I can just be whoever I want. But I always look at the difference between uh, who we're born to be and who we learn to be. And I think there's a distinction between what I would call your adolescent self, which is your impulsive emotional self, versus your true authentic self, and, and who you are destined to be, and, and going back to the person that we're really born to be, and the person that we are, and then develop and flourish from that point. But that's uh, going on a little bit too far on my own philosophy of authenticity. I'm just passionate about, and asking you, curious, as to how you view this whole notion of authenticity, what does it mean to be real, and how does it impact the work that you're doing? If we're talking about authenticity as being kind of uh, our, uh, our, our behaviors match up with our best self, then I think we need to be thinking about how it is that best, best self gets built. Because that's really what we mean when we're talking about the true, authentic, uh, truly authentic leader. The truly authentic leader has built a reservoir of capacity. You might even call it a moral capacity in the, in the sense that they've made decisions about 
what's right, uh, what's what's great, what's good, what's what's desirable, what what where their values are. And so, authentic leadership really has the, the two parts to it that both draw from this reservoir of moral capacity. The first is authentic decision making. And the second is authentic behavior that comes from that decision. Um, so authentic decision-making really depends upon having this moral reservoir to, to draw upon. And that's filled by self-awareness and reflection. It really gives a person the capacity to recognize moral dilemmas, to see the needs of others, to really hear them, to... Um, care about uh, the people who would be the followers. I mean, you don't really have to view people as followers. You just view yourself in some respect as the enabler or the servant or whatever to, that can can recognize the dilemmas that people run into, evaluate the options, and do it transparently so that everybody can see what's happening, and then and then really seek to act authentically. And, and, and acting authentically then means that you make a decision based upon that, that moral capacity. And then authentic behavior comes from also from this reservoir because over, over the years, if you are constantly working, being self-aware and reflecting, you're developing a, a kind of confidence that isn't, as you said, the ad adolescence. But it's really moral courage and moral resiliency that also draw from the moral reservoir that produces authentic moral action and sustainable, authentic behavior. So to me, authentic leadership and a moral core are really inseparable. Absolutely. Now, do you have some, do you have some thoughts? What is your own personal journey around developing that best self? And can you articulate maybe some defining moments, Ron, in your own life that helped you develop that and get that alignment between your... I love that notion about your best self aligned with your behaviors, your decision-making, um, and then how, what you choose to act, how you choose to act after that. How would you define your own evolution in that area? Well... Um you know, there's there's the kind of uh, cycle of irony. You know that, that that you make mistakes because you don't know, <laughs> and then once once you once you know, then you can avoid the mistake. But then you're just set up for the next mistake. And so, it, I, I don't mean it to sound negative, but but in some respects, we learn from the times that what we expected really wasn't what what turned out and there's this differential and you know we call that learning learning from experience maybe even sometimes the school of hard knocks and i think anybody who's who's a good leader and who's especially an authentic leader has has had the times when they didn't listen and they didn't learn and they didn't help and therefore they were unable to lead and unable to influence and in and in those those times if we're self-aware and we're reflective we, that doesn't become a negative downward spiral it really becomes 
a way to take all of those experiences that kind of swirl around in our mind like unset cement in one of those big cement trucks and pour it out and you put it into the building blocks that you can use to then to then do the authentic thing because you actually have some weight and some substance that's cast. I'm not saying exactly that it's always cast in concrete, but the decisions about what your values are really do come from that self-reflection and self-awareness. So I will tell you an experience. I was 17 years old working at the Hudson Bay Company, and I, I think I was like in the sports, sporting goods maybe, and I, I'd have 20 hours a week that I was supposed to work, you know, sort of after high school was out and whatever, and I'd head down to the Bay in Red Deer and, uh, and, and go to work. And, and about that time of life, I was starting into this age-old dilemma that we all have contemplated. Are people basically good or are they basically bad? <laughs> and I, it, it was, and I didn't, you know, of course, in, in high school, you, you read some philosophy and you do some English literature and you, you have those discussions in social studies. And so, so I, I was driving along and I was just coming up to a stoplight to turn right on Gates Avenue and head south over the Red Deer River. And it dawned on me that that was a decision that was up to me. I could decide if I thought people were basically good or basically bad, and that that would define what it is that my set point would be. If I thought people were basically good, then I would have experiences that were uplifting and, and high expectancy of happiness and, and goodness and result, but on occasion, I'd be disappointed. Actually, maybe even body slammed, it would be so harsh. But on the other side, you could be, oh, I think people are basically evil and bad. And then, then what are you? But, you know, to me, it seemed like you'd be a shriveled up raisin that was always cynical and really never happy and, and frankly, occasionally surprised by the goodness that you'd find. But basically, it would be a self-fulfilling downward spiral. And I decided on my drive to work that I just simply assume people are basically good. And that got set in concrete. And everything I've done since then, and many of those experiences where I tried to lead and I was disappointed because I had trusted where I shouldn't have. Well, actually, I should have because it was in concrete. It was one of my values. And I trusted, but I trusted in error. And as a result, it hurt, and it hurt deeply. But in that respect, then, if we're talking about back to the, the capacity, this moral reservoir, you, you actually use this self-awareness, these decisions that you've made, you reflect on them, and it gives you the moral capacity to recognize these dilemmas and to listen to other people and to be empathetic to the point that you can evaluate options transparently, seek to act authentically. And frankly, when people seek your, your input, which they will, if you're one of these people that sees them in their best light, which is a consequence of assuming people are basically good, they'll seek your counsel. And when you give counsel, they'll know that it has no spin, no self-interest. It's just, 
your best shot. And in that respect, the congruence between what you hope to be and who you are leads you to be able to influence because they can see it in you. You've, you've been able to listen to them and learn from them and help. And really, I think authentic leaders are, are helpers. <laughs> that's, that's, that's what we do. So back to the classroom. I show up ready to help. If you guys are going on a career, you decided to do something different than, than every, everyone else. For whatever reason, you decided that you were going to create ideas, values, tools, ways of doing things. Create them conceptually before you created them physically. And that's the fast lane. Because everyone else has to learn by the school of hard knocks. And the thing about that school is it's hard and it knocks you around. <laughs> and so you're here to learn things conceptually so that you can, can actually have all kinds of avoidable issues never, never materialize when you try and implement them physically. And, and I, I tell them up front, that's why we're here. I'm, I'm simply here. I'm your personal shopper. I've gone out and found a bunch of these tools, which I give you conceptually. What you can do is you can take them, apply them to your life, and in that respect, you can end up becoming the person you want to be because you showed up and you're sitting in this class on this warm summer afternoon <laughs> instead of being at the beach. Well, I am fascinated by that story on two fronts. Um, at least two that I can articulate at this point. Number one is the importance of choice and uh, the value of choice in understanding that, that what you choose has an outcome um, of how your life turns out. And that, that could have been too, you know, if you'd have chosen that the world was bad, um, and, and how your life would have, you know, that, that ba people are basically bad, how your life would have been different had you taken that road. But the thing that fascinates me even more, Ron, was that your experience came from within you. So often when we think of these defining moments, what leaders usually tell me is they share, and this is what I usually think of, is an experience that happened to me based on somebody else's leadership or somebody else's impact, a parent, a relative, a boss, a colleague, a friend where somebody will do something to you, and then you make meaning out of that. But I'm fascinated. I don't think I've heard a story yet of how an experience actually emerged from within yourself. Now, I, I don't know what to, to say about that other than I'm fascinated by it, and I'm curious as to what it is about you that would see an internal experience like that. And I think... I, I would like, I, I, you've opened the eyes and hearts of our listeners to say, what are your internal experiences? Because often when we think of a defining moment, it isn't something necessarily that happened to you. But somehow or other, if we could open our eyes, um, we could experience an awareness and a life-defining moment that happens perhaps most powerfully from within us. And I don't know how you explain that that how you could be receptive to something internally like that. I just, I just find it fascinating. I'm not even sure how to respond to it. 
Well, let's try this. Um, most of us, and uh, I, I don't know because I'm just one individual, but the people that I talk to, and, and I meet hundreds every year, wonderful young people as they're growing into their careers. And, um, and the thing that I find resonates with them is that every one of them has kind of a self-talk script that they run through. And it has been uh, kind of like imposed on them from, from outside. And so in that sense, there's this external reactivity that you're talking about. And, and essentially it is when something goes wrong, oh, how dumb. You know, oh, I'm not of this. I can't ever do that. I mean, uh, and even even people who express themselves positively, actually, what's running all the time in the background, it's kind of like the 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 little voice is 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 not one that says, you know, I have I have these positive things about me that are that are 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 the are the best things, and I'm building on them. And 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 it it, it these messages come. They they come in families when people have said harsh words. You know how the harsh word takes ten or more positive words to undo it. You know, so any of these harsh words experiences are are always hard. The other thing that, that I would say to our listeners is that we live in a market system. It's a, it's a system that produces goods and services for everyone, but for the goods and services to move through an economy, they have to have meaning manufactured and attached to them. And this process of meaning manufacture includes the messages that are sent through social, well, it used to be television and radio, but now all the media, these messages are never enough. You need whiter teeth, you need fresher breath, you need a quieter ride, you need a newer car. You, and, and so if, if, if you're a person who values your independence, you will say to yourself, enough's enough. I'm not taking in those messages. I'm going to seize control of my internal self, and I'm going to, I'm going to change the internal script. I'm going to create, and, and the process is is something that that we all know about from from the the great teachers. You being one, Dave, but uh, the great teachers who talk about personal affirmations. Now, if you want to know where all of this self-reflective stuff came from, you know where the page will turn, David. It turns to your parents and my parents. They are the ones who taught us that we have control of our internal voice and that our per personal affirmations are the things, affirmations mean you say them again and again and again instead of oh, how dumb, oh, I'm not of this, I can't do that, I'm never, uh, all that negative stuff. The personal affirmations are, 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 are real. And uh, I learned some of them from your mom, I learned some of them from your dad, I, and I learned some from my mom and my dad, okay? But they're, my personal affirmations, just to, to open up here, 
My personal affirmations, uh, I have six of them, actually. The, f the first is reflection. We all think about the past. And so I've decided that when I think about the past, my thoughts on the past reinforce my values. Not, oh, gee, I wish I should have, could have, would have. Okay. Uh, another one's about vision. And I got this one from Napoleon Hill, listening to his tapes, you know. And it, it's really, I'm steadily becoming the person I want to be. Um, there's another one I call fearlessness. And it, it, it comes from the fact that we all tend to be thin-skinned. And everybody says, oh, yeah, I'm a thick-skinned person. But none of us are. Okay, so um, we all tend to react when we're poked, you know. We slap the mosquito when it bites. You know, we just do. And so my affirmation there is my soft answer eliminates reactivity. That's that instant flash of reaction that can hurt someone and maybe 10 times of repenting will assist you, but maybe not. Uh, the fourth one's my attitude. I like people and I go out of my way to bring them happiness. The fifth one, service. I magnify myself and my, sorry, I magnify my talents in service as prompted by, and, and I'm a person of faith, so it's prompted by the spirit of Christ. And then my last is time choice. My time's consecrated and I use it wisely for my, for my family relationship, for service and for support and for building serenity. So I, I'm, I'm saying I learned that there was an internal voice when I was a kid sitting around your dinner table eating tuna noodle casserole that Joyce made. And, and I just plain and simply paid attention to it and was, was using that, that revelation. It actually just opened a, 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 a side of the world that as, a, as an early adolescent, I hadn't ever realized exists. So th that's, that's kind of how that started. And so the next question is going to be, well, is it too late for me? No, you can take control of your life the moment you hear this. Figure out your own personal affirmations, and as soon as you say one of the negative ones, you know, put it on a three-by-five card, pull it out of your pocket, and any negative, read your positive one that, that neutralizes that ten times. And I would suspect that, so most habits take 13 weeks. I don't know why. I had a partner in a consulting firm one time that said habits are formed over 13 weeks. So I'm just saying, you do this affirmations thing for 13 weeks by countering all the negative stuff and, and the personal choice, which you're absolutely right, your personal choices will change your life trajectory. It's just that simple. And these, uh, this is fascinating, Ron, and I so appreciate uh, your vulnerability and your <laughs> openness with these affirmations. And there, it is a journey. There's no formula. Uh, and I love this notion that it's one mistake after another. But you have given us a template here to work with these affirmations. If we really looked inside and examined our own conscious, conscience and aligned our life with that conscience, it, it is, it, it, we, we move toward that best self what I would call your authentic self, your higher self, whatever words you want to use. It could be your spiritual self, who you are as a human being. Because You're there are, absolutely right. There are I, so, I just there, want to be quick about defining an affirmation. 
it is first person and it is positive and you write it down so that it may be recited. I, I just think that so in other words, you cannot really counter those negative thoughts that are in your personal script unless you have something that says when you say something, oh, I wish I should have, could have, immediately you then say, my thoughts on the past reinforce my values or whatever you choose to do. Part of self-reflection. So the authentic reservoir, the moral aquifer from which we draw comes from this this personal awareness, uh, self-awareness and reflection, and that gives you the moral capacity and, and, it, and everything springs from that. So I know I interrupted you. I apologize, but I just wanted to be sure that everybody who is listening knows that they can own their own affirmations. They're just first-person positive soundbite statements. Beautiful. No, no, it was a great, in- it was a great interruption. And uh, life is, is full of... The things that interrupt us and make us wiser. So uh, I, I'm very curious. It, it's so difficult in this consumer society where we're told we're not enough, and if you buy a product, it will make you enough. And so, you know, I'm 63 now, and how many voices there are in this world that tell me how to be a cool 63-year-old and what I should, where I should live and what success should look like and what car I should drive and what designer clothes I should wear, but how many voices guide us to our own voice in life? And I think this is a very strong message that you're conveying today, is to stop listening to the voice, listen to the internal voice as well as those external voices. And this process of of, uh, affirmations and guiding you to your own, is really a process for guiding you to your own voice, which guides you to your best self which you've built a case today will make you a more influential person. When you are integrated as a human being, that is perhaps the biggest task that we've got as a leader is to be fully aligned and at least moving toward that moral capacity within us. However, we define that as an authentic alignment. Anything else you want to say about that, Ron? As we build our moral reservoir, and I don't mean moral in the sense of just good and bad. I'm saying the, the moral capacity, the self-awareness and reflection, the moral courage, the moral resiliency, the moral efficacy that says I can. I think that as, as we do that, that our capability to match our actions with our own best self ends up helping us all to be more authentic as people. And then when people depend upon us, when we have to do that decision-making, it's authentic decision-making because we recognize the dilemmas. We evaluate the alternatives transparently. We, we, we speak of our intentions to act authentically so that people can hold us accountable. And frankly, it's okay to be accountable because there's no distance between us and our values. Our, our decision-making and our behavior end up being aligned. And in that sense, this authenticity that we've been talking about ends up turning into to leadership. So it's kind of like... So, you know, we, we've often heard ancient Chinese saying, you know, but, but honestly, some of the philosophers 
in in early Chinese thought. So uh, Lao Tzu, so about 600 years BC. So was there really? Maybe it's three different philosophers. But the philosophy on leadership that came forward was one that I read early in my career, and it it really is at the core of thinking about authentic leadership as influencing. Lao Tzu said, and I'll just read this here: "As for the best leaders, the people do not notice their existence. When the best leader's work is done, the people say, 'We did it ourselves.'" Well, well, Ron, I have to say that you, you've lived that today in our conversation. This isn't just about words. Because I ordinarily, I just have to share my own experience here. I ordinarily send out a request with people who have these conversations with, a bio. What would you like me to say about you? And I realized at the beginning of our conversation that I hadn't sent that request out to you. So, and then I messed up where you teach. But you have let me know today that your ego is not involved in this. In fact, you talked, you, you talked very little, which inspired me about your accomplishments and your publications and the impact that you've had in your work in teaching university for many, many years and running departments and publishing around the world. And you, you spoke very little about that. In fact, none at all, really, because what I got an essence of is not what you do in the world, but who you are. And that has, been, that has actually spoken louder today than anything you could have said, is the fact that you, you've, just, you've just demonstrated exactly this quote, that it isn't about being noticed, it's about actually not being noticed. And you've done that uh, beautifully today. Thank you, Ron. Oh, it's my pleasure, David. Uh, thanks for the invitation, and I hope everyone who has listened today has something to chew on that really will bring, you know, sort of more more light, more truth, more fun, more enjoyment, more satisfaction in uh, in leading, but also in living. I think you would probably suggest that if we're enjoying our life more and finding fulfillment in our own life that we naturally give out of what I would call caring out of overflow rather than emptiness, is that it, it comes from a place of love much more freely when we're at peace with ourselves. I would imagine you would agree with that. I, I sure would, and frankly, I love the way that you talk about caring. Okay, so that, that uh, your, I don't know if it's your latest book anymore, but that book on caring really does help all of us who consider that to be part of authentic leadership, right? Listening, learning, caring, helping, and then leading. I think, I think that, that is the core from which we, we draw. It is the, the way that the moral reservoir, the, the aquifer from which we can draw authenticity is, is, is filled and, and replenished, really. So I don't think we read it once <laughs> and think about it. I think we replenish it again and again. Well, I just have to go on record as giving you some public acknowledgement because it was your journey and mine through my dear brother, Hal, who was a very good friend of yours. Your visiting Hal and us having that weekend together and stimulating that conversation about caring 
your impact on my life, particularly in that weekend, but in the many years preceding, impacted my thinking around the writing of that book. So I want to publicly express my appreciation to you, Ron, for the impact you've had on my life. Well, uh, it's, it's an honor. And, and I, I, I love working with you, and I, and I love the influence that you are uh, in, in, in the lives of the people who seek your counsel. It's wise. It comes from, a, from an authentic and, and a happy and a joyful place. And so, like, of, of course this is a good podcast to listen to. <laughs> well, why wouldn't we listen to Dave Irvin, right? So, yeah. Thanks for the invitation. Well, I surely appreciate it. Thank you, Ron. Anything else? Any, I think you've given lots of good closing remarks here, but anything else that you want to just, uh, that I haven't asked you that you want to share as we wrap this up today? All the folks who are drawn to the, the approach to, to leading and thinking and listening and learning and loving and caring and helping, I think, I think everyone listening who is one of those people should know that there are a whole bunch of us that are really, really, really glad that our assumption that people in the world are basically good is actually true. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you, Ron, for inspiring us today. Okay, it's been great talking to you. We'll see you then. You bet.